morning, everyone, and happy Super Bowl Sunday. I am impressed that you are here. I'll be honest, if I didn't work here today, I would have gone to the 9 a.m. and been home to watch pregame football uh, already. So, well, uh, we're, we're glad you're here. We're going to get you out of here as quickly as we can so you can get your pizzas and you can start getting, worked, uh, get, getting work going on your food. I read this week that more Tums are sold today and tomorrow <laughs> than any other time of the year. I don't know if it's true, but I read it. Well, a number of years back, I was talking to a friend of mine who lives down in Southern California. Speaking of pizza, you'll see where this is going. Um, This is a friend who grew up with me back in Chicago, and we were just kind of reminiscing about the good old days. And when that you're from Chicago, the good old days involves lots of food. Uh, There's just some food you can get in Chicago you cannot get everywhere else. When I say that, I mean Italian beef sandwiches. And I mean Chicago-style hot dogs. And, and one of my favorites, you've probably heard me talk about this before, Chicago deep dish pizza. You just cannot get that anywhere else. It's really hard to find outside the Windy City. There are a few places here that do an amazing job, better than most I, I, I found outside Chicago. Apaches, uh, Zachary's, Blue Line Pizza, they are the real deal. But they're not perfect. They're not exactly the same. Well, This friend of mine and I always said, man, if somebody opened up a Chicago-style pizza place on the West Coast, they would make a killing because you can't get that stuff out here the way you could back there. So I was on the phone with him about six years ago, and he said to me, guess who is moving west? Gino's East, one of the most popular deep-dish pizza places in Chicago, is trying to open up a restaurant on the West Coast, and he said they were asking him to be an investor. And my friend sounded very seriously like he was going to consider doing this. And the reason was he believed and he trusted there's a market out this way for what people eat back there. And because he trusted, he considered putting some money into this opportunity. And so our conversation got me thinking, I'm not going to invest in any pizza places anytime soon. But I wonder, is there a correlation between how much we trust something in how much money we're willing to invest in it. When we believe in something and we think it will benefit us and improve our lives, improve our situation, improve our mood, when we trust it, there can be all sorts of ways that we we show that trust, right? We put time into it, we put energy into it, we, we, we tell other people about it, we sing the praises of it. All of those are ways that we show our trust. But just being honest, my observation, the number one way we tend to show our trust is through our money. Earlier this week, I started kind of planning our summer vacation because I'm splitting time between two organizations right now. I thought this year we're going to we're going to stay close. Maybe we'll just go down to Southern California. And I was looking at some of the stuff we could do down there besides go to the beach every day. And I, I thought about taking a day and going to Disneyland. But it is so expensive. And then I looked at Knott's Berry Farm. And then I looked at Universal Studios. And while those aren't exactly Disney prices, they're not free either every day, you know, like a, like a beach would be every day. And so I started looking at the reviews online of those places because I haven't been to Universal in a long time, like 30 years. Is it worth $100 for one day? And what I was doing is I looked at the reviews of all these places, was figuring out what theme park I could go to to have the best time. Which one that I could believe in because I don't want to invest money in tickets unless I trust it. Even the littlest thing you do, like, like ordering a book on Amazon, when you pay with your credit card, what you're doing is you're putting your money down as a way of showing trust that the book you picked is worth reading 
and trust that they'll send it to you when they said they would, two days or less. Uh, now, I'm not saying money is the only way that we show our trust, but it is the major way we show our trust. It, it, it's why we say this. You're all going to know the end of this phrase. Put your money where your mouth is. We would never say that if we didn't believe this. You say you believe something to be true. If you really want to show that you trust it, put your money there. And of course, what you already know, having lived a little bit of life, is that a lot of times we've put our trust in things and things have let us down. And often what becomes clear in real tight times, there's only one thing worth putting your absolute trust in that will not let you down, and that is God. But the goal of this morning is not to try to convince you to put your trust in God. Because again, I think you and I have learned that lesson. We've taught on that before. Today, I want to talk to you about the way that we show our trust, and specifically this idea of showing our trust through our money. I find it really interesting that our money, the most significant way we show trust in other things, has this slogan on it, in God we trust. Isn't that interesting? Did you know that that first appeared, uh, on, uh, the first time that appeared on any money was the two cent coin in 1864? Did you even know there was a two cent coin? I didn't either until I was researching this. Now I realize there's been some controversy ab about putting that motto on our money and I get it, it it's fine. If you don't believe in God, I, I can see why that would bug you and I'm not here to fight that fight today, but I think it's interesting. Let me tell you how that phrase came into being on our nation's currency. In 1861, uh, a reverend named Mark Watkinson, who is a, a pastor of a church called the Old Ridley Baptist Meeting House, sent a letter to a, a Treasury Tech Secretary, Sam and Chase, saying, I think our money is missing something, an acknowledgement of God. What if something goes wrong and brings our nation to its knees? Like, what if there's an economic downturn and people hit hard times? I think it's important that on our money, we find a way, a way to express that we trust God. And so the Treasury Secretary gets this letter. And a few days later, he sends a new letter to the, to the director of the Mint, James Pollock, and it says, in a way that only people 150 years ago would talk, Dear Sir, no nation can be strong except in the strength of God, or safe except in his defense. The trust of our people in God should be declared on our national coins. You will cause a device to be prepared without unnecessary delay with a motto expressing in the fewest and tersest words possible this national recognition, and the rest is history. They came up with something short and sweet and to the point. Four words, in God we trust. That'll fit on a coin. Now I bring it up because I think it's ironic that the very thing we use to put our trust in stuff Money, this method of trust, reminds us we shouldn't be putting our trust in this stuff. We should be putting it, first and foremost, in God. And so the question that, that, that you and I would ask, how exactly do we use our money to put our trust in him? And let me just time out and say, this has always been a struggle for me. And this can be real hard to talk about as a pastor. Um, just to give you some background on me, I, I grew up in a church where money was talked about all the time, and it was asked for quite a bit, and th there was this expectation that every member give a certain percentage of their income every single week, and at least at my church, I always felt like I was guilted into giving whatever small amount of cash I had to keep the doors open. Part of why this is kind of a hard topic for me to address, for many pastors to address, is that when I think of it, I think of guilt or really manipulation. 
and I, I think of confusion. Um, you, know how, you know how when you go to get your oil changed, inevitably the guy comes back with a long list of other stuff that you need done? It happens to me every time. You need a new air filter and you need new spark plugs and I'm thinking it's time to change some hoses and belts and, and you get those replaced. Well, I'm the guy who knows so little about cars that I just get this sudden rush of confusion to my head. And when I went in wanting nothing but a $49.99 oil change with my coupon, I walk out paying for like $600 worth of stuff that somebody said I had to do. And I feel confused. But more than that, I, I, as I'm driving away, I feel a little bit like a sucker. Like, like I had no choice in the matter because he made it so complicated. I had to say yes. All right, sometimes when I'm listening to pastors talk about giving, especially in the church that I grew up in, I wonder if they're not like the oil change guy, intentionally using terms like tithe and first fruits and good measure, all in an attempt to get you to be so confused and feel so uneducated on the topic that you'll just say, whatever, just tell me what I owe. So long story short, I've had some issues with the subject of giving over my years, sitting in the same place you are, hearing people like me talk, and just being honest, I, I built up some objections, some problems that I had with giving to God through the church. And for quite some time, those problems steered me in what I would do with God and money. They kind of determined my direction about if I should give, how much I should give, even who I should give to. And I am guessing that some of you, while you have very generous hearts and every desire to follow God and honor him with your money, I would bet some of you have the same objections or problems or just questions even that I had. Let me walk you through my objections and my search for, for some of these answers. Maybe in my search, God will speak to you about trusting him the way that he's spoken to me. All right. Um, my first problem with giving was that while I knew that the Bible talked about giving, I thought that every church I'd ever been a part of felt like they had the right to make what I'll just call extra rules, where the Bible never made rules. And if I could just be more specific, every church I'd ever been a part of had told me that we're supposed to give 10% of everything we make to God. Uh, it's, a, it's a word that you might have heard of called a tithe. And my problem had been that as I would listen to pastors speak on giving, it, it wasn't enough to just encourage me to be generous, but the church or the pastor felt like they had to pick what I thought of as a random percentage, 10% for me to kind of owe them and owe God. Now, I say random because I honestly thought that they were just pulling this number out of thin air. But a little bit later in life, I found out where they were getting it. Um, Leviticus 27 we're at this place in the Bible where God is ready to start doing some law giving to his nation. He's going to tell them the rules. And he comes to this spot where he tells people how much to give him. And in verse 30, we see this whole thing right here about 10%. Take a look. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. Now, just so I can be clear and not like the pastors I was telling you that I listened to that used to confuse me, let me just make sure that you get it. Tithe written there in verse 30 is just another word that simply means tenth. When you hear somebody in church today talking about tithing, what they're referring to is this law that God made in the Old Testament of giving him 10% of everything that you get. 
And so my church would point to this passage and other ones like it in the Old Testament, and they would say, see, God commanded us to give a tenth of everything that we make. Therefore, everybody here ought to give a tithe. Well, my problem was maybe that was true for the Israelites back in the Old Testament, following law, giving to their high priests, things like that. But I don't see Jesus talking about a tithe in any of the books of the New Testament talking about 10%. Yeah, that's the way they did it once upon a time, but there are all sorts of laws in the Old Testament we don't follow anymore. I eat bacon and I shop on Saturdays and I don't have a three foot beard. So why are we still pushing this one? And I thought, oh, I know what's going on. Churches stick to this Old Testament law because it's a way for them to get money. So here's, here's what I did. I decided to start researching it, and I set out to prove that the 10% thing was wrong so I wouldn't have to do it. The first thing that I discovered, this concept of giving 10% of your income to God, it actually started way before God ever even made it a law in the Old Testament. For the sake of time, I won't go into too much detail, but before God even brings it up or seems like it's on his mind to have this law, some of his people on their own get the idea to start giving him 10%. One day, Abraham does this when he returns from a battle. Years later, Jacob does it after God tells him he's going to watch over him and his family. It's not a law. Nobody tells them to. These guys just decide to do it, and it takes on this life from there. Now, that may seem small to you, but it was huge to me because I'm not a big rule guy. I'm not a big law guy. Um, you tell me there's a rule we're supposed to follow, I'll try to figure out why we shouldn't have to follow it. Anybody else like that? Am I the only one? But you show me a story or a couple of them where some guys who are much closer to God than I am who are like the first people to say, God, I'll follow you wherever you go. Each one of them decides on their own that the right thing to do is give God 10%. I started to wonder if maybe there's something to that. And, and I started to realize that the church did not make this up. God didn't even give it to his people as a practice for their life until people started organically sensing on their own that this was something that would be the right thing to do. Now, I figured this out and still trying to prove why I shouldn't have to do it. I decided to use the New Testament as my rationale and specifically Jesus. I had never seen a place where Jesus told his followers to give 10% to God. And I said, you know what? I'm a Jesus follower. So I'll just leave like your Jewish 10% thing out of my life. And then one day I found this passage in Matthew 23. Jesus is having quite an angry moment and he's being as politically incorrect as he's ever been, or at least that's recorded in the Bible. And he's standing in front of this crowd of Pharisees and teachers of the law and he is going off on them. And he's talking to them about how they pretend to be righteous, but really they're hypocrites and their hearts don't match up to their actions. And he just paints them out to be incredibly sinister. And then he gets to this part where he says, woe to you, Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. It is a great Jesus moment. He says, you followed the law about tithing to its most minute extent, where you, you're even giving 10% of your spices to God, yet you don't care about people. 
injustice done in the world and forgiveness and loyalty. You're hypocrites. You're dead on the inside. And when I read this verse, I was like, yes. Finally, evidence of Jesus telling people, your whole 10% tithe thing is bankrupt. Stop following the law. Start caring about people. But then I finished the rest of the verse. Jesus continues, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In other words, you should have practiced justice, mercy, faithfulness without neglecting the tithe. Get that, it's real interesting. Jesus doesn't say, you should have stopped tithing and started giving to justice instead. He says, start caring about people and don't stop tithing. You guys, I read this passage and I saw my problem, my objection just slipping away. See, the thing is, the more that I've looked at the New Testament, especially at Jesus, I found that Jesus never lowered the bar. Think about that. He, he, he says, you've heard it been said, don't commit murder. If you do, you'll be subject to judgment. But I tell you, don't even be angry. Anybody who's angry with their brother or sister is subject to judgment. He raises the bar there. He says, you've heard you're not supposed to commit adultery. I tell you, don't even look at another person's spouse lustfully while you're married. If you do, you already committed adultery. Raises the bar. If somebody asks you to go one mile, go two. Someone asks for your shirt, give them your coat. We never see Jesus say, you have been told, give 10% to God, but I tell you, eh, it's cool, don't worry about it. How about 6%? You do that instead? He doesn't. He always raised the bar. In fact, as I continue to look through the rest of the Bible, like after Jesus was gone, as Peter and Paul and others were starting the church, there is never a moment, let me just be very clear on this, never a moment we see anybody giving less than 10%. The examples in the New Testament are people selling their houses and their stuff to give even more. In Acts, we see people raise the bar to 100%. Nobody stops short of 10%. And in case you think like I did, okay, but after the church spread even further, like out of the Jewish communities, people did not carry on this 10% thing. Well, I looked it up. Irenaeus, Augustine, Jerome, all right, up to 400 years later, people, historians, are writing about these Christians who do this very weird thing of giving 10% or more of what they make back to the church. What I found is this, this concept of giving God 10% did not start as law. Some guys just decided to do it, and it didn't remain law with Jesus because we're no longer subject to the law. But do not make the mistake that I did for so long, thinking that God changed his mind on what he wanted from his people. Even though I set out to prove it wrong, I found out a good principle in figuring out what I'm supposed to give God is at least 10% of what I make. Now, okay, let me give you another problem that I had with giving to God and with churches talking about it. I always thought, all right, well, I'm okay with giving, but why should I have to give it to the church? Um, just again, telling you some of my story, I looked around and I saw what the church spent money on. Ridiculously nice video projectors and printed materials that I thought must have cost a fortune and people who were on the payroll that I thought were a waste of money. I mean, why do you need more than a couple of pastors? And I thought, surely God must not want me to give to this fallen, imperfect money pit of an organization called the church. 
And so I set out to prove that God must have had something different in mind, that I could take this money that I was supposed to give, this 10%, and just kind of distribute it however I wanted to needs that I saw around the world. And so I looked right away at the book of Acts, where we see the early church do these incredible things like sell their possessions and start meeting people's needs. And I I figured that's where I'm going to make my case, that we should just be taking care of each other, bypassing the middleman, the church. And then I saw what happened in the book of Acts. This new family of believers did not put their offering directly into the hands of someone in need because they were afraid that it might make them arrogant. They actually thought personally handing money to someone else who who didn't have enough would make them feel better than that person or might come off as condescending. Do you know what we see in the book of Acts? Look at this. It says, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet where it was then distributed to anyone who had need. They laid their money at the apostles' feet, their church leaders, and they made them distributors so that when somebody needed something, it wasn't taken from one person so that they would feel like they owed that person and live their life feeling like they were indebted to that one person, where every time they ran into that person in the street or at worship, they would feel like they had to say thanks. It was given from the community. And I realized that this fallen, imperfect organization called the church that I had preferred not to give to was God's plan for not just taking care of people's spiritual needs, but their physical needs and their emotional needs and their relational needs. And yes, while I disagree with some of the ways that that churches spend money, I disagree with some of the ways the Red Cross spends money. And I disagree with some of the ways mission organizations that I give to spend money. There's no one in the world that I agree with everything they do with every penny spent. But the thing about the local church, we're part of that. We actually get a say in that. Think back to a few years ago, a young woman in our church said, I work for a home for pregnant women who have no place to go, and I'd like to buy them some books that I think will change their lives, introduce them to Jesus. And somebody in this place said, let's contribute to that as a church. I I think back to the time put into getting Goodness Village off the ground, or our partnership with a church in Uganda that that, that came about from people in Crosswinds who had built relationships with those pastors and, and that staff in Uganda. I think of the people who walk into our church office and talk to our benevolence team and request help. Um, One reason that I believe God has called us to give this 10% to the church is because his plan to change the world begins with the church. He commissioned the church to, to live out his mission here on earth. Jesus was the one who said this, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Look at what he didn't say. He didn't say government won't be overcome or charity won't be overcome or even really good mission organizations will not be overcome. He said, I have a plan for this world to have life for spiritual needs and emotional needs and relational needs and physical needs and needs for people to know about eternity with me. I have a plan for those needs to be met and I am building a thing to do it called the church, and I want you to be in it and involved with it and to give to it because the gates of hell might overcome a lot of things, but it will not overcome the body that is called the church. Okay, let me give you one last objection I always had to the whole giving thing, especially when I was first starting out. 
I always thought, okay, this is good, this is fine, but I can't afford to give. I can't afford to give much to God, definitely not 10%. And so here's what I did. I started searching the Bible for all the places that must exist about how if after you've paid all your bills and bought all your food and you know done everything that you need to do, if you don't have a lot left over, then it's cool to not give 10%. And so I found this verse from Proverbs 3. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Again, I don't, I don't want to be the guy that uses confusing terms, so let me just, first fruits literally means give God the first 10% of your stuff. Don't give him the lesser stuff, what you have left over. Give him the good. Um, the way I like to explain this, uh, you ever noticed at work when somebody has a huge birthday party and there's a lot of people who are coming into the break room to, to kind of celebrate together, somebody tends to get one of those huge rectangle cakes from Costco and there are good pieces and in my opinion, there are less good pieces. Um, my opinion, the good pieces are any of the edge pieces, especially the corners where there's lots of frosting. Um, the ones with the really good pieces are, are the ones with a flower on top, you know, something on it so you have more sugary goodness. And what are the less good pieces? They're the ones right out of the center. There's a little bit of frosting on top. I mean, it's still cake, but it, it counts. But we all know it's not as good as the edges. My observation is, at that party, everybody goes for the outside pieces, and you're left with just the center that sits there in the break room for four days, right? It's kind of in our nature as humans. Okay, God sees this, and he says this. He says, when you give me 10%, don't give me the leftover part that nobody wants. Give me 10% of the good stuff. Like, think about me first. And at one point in my life, what I realized... The reason I couldn't afford to give was because I made my financial decisions about other things before I figured out what I was going to give to God. Of course I only had 4% or 5% left for him. I bought a house that cost me so much I could only manage 4%. Or I bought a car that was so nice I could only swing 7%. And the truth is, the truth is, I could have afforded 10% only if I had made that decision first. That's why it's called a first fruit. So my, my, my fifth problem, I could not afford it. And what I realized was I had flipped the intention of tithing upside down. I was giving from what I had left instead of giving from what I started with. And this is where it comes to trust. This is why we wanted to close this series on trusting God in tight times, talking about this, giving God 10% off the top right away. That goes against every paranoid instinct that I have ever had. How do I know there's not going to be something that comes up that's bigger that I need to pay for? How do I know 90% is really enough to give me and my family what I want or what we need? It seems like the, the, the secure thing to do, the less risky thing to do, the wise money management thing would be to pay for everything else first and then whatever I have left, that's what I'll give to God. And so trusting God never even entered the equation for me. In my house, I put my trust. In my things, I put my trust. In my 401k, I put my trust. In my God, I give you what I have left. And God says, listen, those things will let you down. They'll let you down. If you want to have real security, transfer your trust to me. Put your money where your mouth is and start trusting me.
the last two weeks, we, we, we've given you some challenges. I want to just give you one more today as we close the series. Here's what it is. If you do not already have one, I want to encourage you to set a budget. A budget for what you're going to spend every month on every category of your life. But I want to challenge you to think about taking 10% off the top. and Start having conversations with God and with your spouse if you're single, maybe it's, it's with your friends, maybe it's with your small group about what it would look like for, for you to take 10% off the top. And as you do it, it would be a way of saying, God, I trust you to provide the rest. Now, some of you will sit down and do this budgeting thing. You'll write out a budget and you'll start with 10%. And as you go through it, as you do it, you're going to realize if I do 10%, I will not have enough to pay my bills. And, and I want to encourage you, if you run across that, and I've been there in my life, I want to encourage you to say, okay, then fine. How do I structure my life starting now so that I can get to a point where someday I can start to give God a full tithe? Like what steps do I need to start taking now so that eventually I can honor God and put my full trust in him? Derek is going to come out and just lead us in one final song before we go. And before he does, I want to be real clear. This thing with giving to God, it is not about paying a bill or making an investment. It's certainly not about securing your eternity. It's about expressing your trust. It's about saying, God, all I really need in this world is you. And, and before we sing together and then leave and hopefully take that challenge, I want to ask you for a moment, would you just bow your head with me? Take, take a minute. And I want to ask you to do something that might feel a little bit weird. Just Would you, in your head, acknowledge all the other things that you put your trust in? Think about where it is you put your trust. And then Derek is going to lead us in the most freeing activity where we sing together Yes, God, I put trust in those things, but today I am saying that I put my trust in you.